You're listening to Design Tomorrow. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. What is real? That is going to be a question in the future, and I don't mean a rhetorical one. Not because we'll finally have all that cognitive surplus we've been promised so that we can consider those questions we left behind in the smoky, tapestry-draped, blacklit dorm rooms of our youth, but because daily experiences, so subtly technological as to look and sound and feel as natural as, well, nature, will provoke us to ask. Today, I want to imagine the future, not too far off, where the lines between real and something else will be so blurry that we'll probably need a whole new category of technology to help us bring them back into focus. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human. Which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. So that's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. Let's imagine that we've traveled to Egypt. We're here to visit the pyramids. Now, I've never been there, but I've imagined going to Egypt countless times. When I was a child, all it took was a book of black and white line drawings to transport me there. But now, 
I can go there with Google Street View, which, I must say, is pretty incredible as far as experiences I can have while sitting at my desk. But as excellent as Google surrogacy is, it can only get me so close. I'm still a few meters from the stones themselves. What if I want to get closer? A couple of clicks of the zoom just don't quite do it. The image gets bigger, but it also gets blurrier. How about the Mona Lisa? Let's now imagine visiting the Louvre in Paris and standing before Leonardo's masterpiece. Now, that's something I've actually seen, and unfortunately, it looks much more like the backs of hundreds of people's heads and lots of glowing rectangles than what I can see when I think of that painting in my mind's eye. Most of what I saw on the day that I visited the Louvre I saw through the glowing rectangle of someone else's camera screen. I waited a long time to get closer, but standing a few meters from the painting, which is only two and a half feet tall and hung behind a thick panel of bulletproof glass that reflects every flash of the hundreds of cameras pointed at it constantly, I wondered, why even bother? A Google image search honestly delivers a better experience of viewing this particular painting than actually being in the same room with it does. But being here, in my studio, an entire ocean away, is certainly no substitute for being in Paris. Nor is Street View, though it may get me closer. Now, let's imagine standing by those pyramids again. But this time, we're wearing glasses that let us zoom in close enough to see the texture of the stones at the base of the pyramid. We can see now farther and with greater detail than we could have seen with our naked eye, even through the things and the people that stand in our way. Believe it or not, this is possible today. In fact, over a decade ago, Microsoft's Live Labs demoed something called Photosynth. I'd like to jump straight to an early prototype of Photosynth that we first got working in the summer. This is a reconstruction of Notre Dame Cathedral that was done entirely computationally from images scraped from Flickr. You just type Notre Dame into Flickr, and uh, you get some pictures of guys in t-shirts and of the campus and so on. And uh, each of these orange cones represents an image that was, uh, that was discovered to belong to this model. And so these are, all, these are all Flickr images, and they've all been related um, spatially in this way. And we can just navigate in this very simple way. Couple that with the Oculus, and you basically have it. Add a decade or two to the equation, and perhaps you can do it without wearing a big black plastic box strapped to our head. In fact, maybe we'll iterate from something like Google Glass, which still lets us be functional humans, albeit silly-looking functional humans in the physical world, to contact lenses to something embedded directly into our brain. My guess is that we'll skip the contact lenses, though. There's probably only so small a camera can get, and we'll have an easier time convincing the brain that it's seeing something that it isn't than shrinking a camera down to the point where it doesn't hurt to blink over. So it's probably going to happen. But here's the real question. Are you really seeing what you're seeing? 
does it even matter? In this case, probably not. That the super high-res image of the Mona Lisa is not the actual Mona Lisa is not going to matter one bit to you when the actual Mona Lisa is buried under a hundred tourist heads and iPhone screens. You'll get that the image you're seeing was taken by somebody else at some other time, but the trick will be good enough for your brain, and after all, you'll still be standing in Paris. The best of both worlds, right? But what if, while you're standing there gazing through skulls and screens at your pseudo-Lisa, you suddenly hear the raspy voice of a man in your head? Leonardo himself, telling you about what it was like to paint the Mona Lisa hundreds of years ago. It's a museum director's dream, a completely immersive experience, and it too is possible today. Now, forget those handheld players with earphones or the iPhone apps with guided tours. I'm talking about something totally different. I'm talking direct to your brain. All you need is a good script, a good actor who can do Leonardo in 20 different languages, and, oh yeah, a sonic beam. But it has been done. You may remember Holosonic's audio spotlight technology that was used to project a focused beam of sound from a Soho billboard for the paranormal state television show directly into the heads of unwitting passersby. If not, look it up. But people were pretty freaked out by that. Are you bored? Get Skygo for your mobile. Best entertainment. Maybe you also heard about the talking window demo that used bone conduction technology to release high-frequency oscillations that the brain converts into sound. It was tested on a public train. And some people were freaked out by that one too, but surprisingly, not because of the whole hearing voices in your head thing, but because the particular implementation required that your face actually touch the dirty window of the train to hear it. But back to Paris. Standing there at the Louvre, studying the Mona Lisa in greater detail than the eye could ever grant, with Leonardo's voice in your head, is it all real, is still a meaningful question to ask. You know it isn't. But how many experiences like this would you need to have throughout your daily life before it simply didn't matter anymore? These kinds of enhancements and augmentation can't be expected to be limited to just entertainment and tourism. After all, two of the working examples I've already mentioned were for advertising. So yeah, throw in a little Tupac hologram into the mix and you can expect to have Steve Jobs himself tell you why you should buy the iPhone 13 while you're standing at the Apple Store in 2020. It goes deeper still. Technology will augment experiences by adding things to them, but it will also do so by taking things away. That's what the Active Listening Project is all about. After a wildly successful Kickstarter campaign, they're well on their way to delivering wireless earbuds that will let you, quote, optimize the way you hear the world, end quote. Specifically, by filtering out the stuff you don't want to hear. Now, it's a neat idea, sure, and certainly fascinating in the way in which we can pinpoint particular needles in the haystack of audible frequencies. But, to what extent is the collage of sounds, some harsh, some annoying, some lovely, a necessary and good part of living in the world? And is removing things you don't like an optimal way to experience it? 
Yes, the early adopter is going to be the douchey business class traveler who just can't bear to hear that whining brat and coach shrill over the civilized clinking of his cocktail tumbler. But what of it when it finds its way to the rest of us? Might sound filtering become dangerous when it's spread that wide? What if filtering out the high register of your neighbor's alarm clock also filters out the sound of your building's fire alarm? What if filtering out the traffic puts you in front of a Mack truck because you didn't hear it coming? Perhaps we'll figure that all out. We probably will, but we're still left with the same question. Is the silence of your day real when you filtered out all the sounds that you don't want to hear? And does it matter, again, so long as you are the one in control of the filtering? There are plenty of other examples of technologically additive and subtractive experiences, but they're not just limited to sight and sound. Even taste is hackable. There's a VR headset created by a Japanese researcher, Taguchi Narumi, that can alter the image of food being eaten by its wearer, making it larger or smaller, for instance, while the six tubes connected to it can release strong smells that match to the image can completely change the way a subject tastes the food. Now, Narumi intends his device to have many uses, including weight loss and hospital rehab. Clinical trials are underway with a group of longtime Soylent devotees whose palates are at a so-called zero point, having only tasted gruel for the last few years. Just kidding on that last part. It sounded real, though, didn't it? But hey, somebody's got to bankroll this thing, and why not start with the Valley Richies who have already demonstrated an enthusiasm for living like a robot? And we really think they're going to love this just as much as those active listening buds. But as easy as it is to mock those who will surely be the first to enthusiastically use these kinds of technologies, the question of their impact on how life is experienced will trickle down, just as the application of these technologies will as well. And with all of these technological enhancements rewiring our brains, it's a sobering thought that perhaps we won't remember what it was like before them anyway. All of these technologies put us in an altered state— of seeing and hearing and even tasting things that aren't there. So, what of reality? And here's another question. Are any of these things so different from walking about the world wearing earbuds all the time with a perpetual personal soundtrack that has nothing to do with the places you go other than that you and your device are there? Because we're already doing that today. Though they may be smaller, less visible, and more perceptually rich, they are still fundamentally about altering our environment, something we do in countless and subjective ways today. So why do these future concepts feel so different? The filter bubble, as initially coined, was the unintentional result of the data-mined social networking experience. But what happens when we intentionally create filter bubbles of our own that follow us everywhere we go, in the real world? How loose can the weave of the fabric of society get before it no longer holds together on the basis of shared experience? And how many people will have been driven mad in the process of augmenting our experience? The lack of a definitive, objective reality will only contribute to a proliferation of alternatives, some more harmless and isolated than others, some widespread, and some just crazy. If you don't believe me, go ahead and Google Project Bluebeam and see where that takes you. So, what is real? And how many people have to experience it for it to be so? That's the question, isn't it? If this kind of technology becomes pervasive enough, 
then the question of what is really there becomes much more difficult to answer, doesn't it? So much of reality is the combination of subjective experience and cultural agreements about the meaning of shared subjective ones. If displaced experiences, whether as benign as supersight from a tourist path along the pyramids, or as subversive as personal filter bubbles, or as manipulative as psyops warfare become the norm, then reality itself will become much more complicated to interpret. What we see on television, hear on radio, and read on the web have already had the guts of objective truth torn from them. What happens when the gutting spills out onto the streets? Reality is often defined self-referentially. It is what it is, as opposed to, say, what it could or should be. To expand the vernacular to include technological qualification, as in to more narrowly define reality as that which is unmediated or uncreated by technology, is, at this point in human development, impossible. A future in which a new layer of experience, ungrounded, unwired but fully sensory, is a daily reality is inexorable, just as a walk in the park uninterrupted by a buzzing in your pocket or a glance at someone else's screen is today. Ubiquity is, as Kevin Kelly so aptly put it, what technology wants. Not necessarily ubiquity of objects of technology, but ubiquity of signal, experience of the technological kind so everywhere that it is all that there is. Every technology is a string of reality, within which is an entire world of experience, provided one simply look, or hear, or feel. But how will we find our footing on the shifting sand of reality created by a truly ubiquitous technological experience? And what responsibility do we, the makers, you and I, have to the preservation of a coherent, shared reality? I wonder. it for today. Really. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review. This show's future is grounded in a stark but subjective reality, whether you like it and whether other people agree with you. So help me create that reality. Tell a friend that yes, there's yet another podcast out there about design, technology, and being human, but this one is a little different and maybe it will describe the reality you're living. You can email me any feedback you have at chris at designtomorrow.co or you can tweet me at designtomorrow. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. Thanks for listening. And remember, what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. See you then.
Welcome to the super secret after credits link section. Now for the newcomers, what I do here is quickly read a bunch of links to you which, if you want to click them, you can find in the show notes below. Number one, one million miles from here, just a tiny bit along the way to the sun, a camera sends 11 photos of Earth back to NASA every day. And good lord, you'd hope that that would provide some argument to the flat earthers out there. Number two, also filed under Earth is Amazing, check out this video tour of the low line, the world's first underground and sunlit garden. Number three, this one is amazing, and I have no idea how I missed it, because I'm a big fan of Imogen Heap, but a few years ago she demoed musical gloves, and man, I am so glad I saw this eventually. She is truly inspiring. Number four, scientists are trying to use a drug called rapamycin to extend the lives of 20 dogs in Seattle. Now, it's worked in preliminary tests on mice, but an interesting side hypothesis presented in the article is that mice commonly live for only two years, so they may have, quote, more room for improvement than a longer-lived species. In any case, I and my pups support this research. As opposed to number five, the let's-mutate-our-dogs approach of these Chinese-DNA-edited superdogs, a fresh hell that is sadly much further along. I'm sure this bodes well for the planet and won't end in some kind of Jurassic Park-like disaster. Lastly, number six, which is a quote, and it goes something like this. Most startups claiming to promote the sharing economy are really just neoliberal extravagances that will further enrich the smartphone-toting white elite. Amen. And that, my friends, is it. I'll see you next time.